it smells bad. So I said, Simon, go over there and see if it smells bad. He says, no way, I'm not doing that. He's, he's wise enough to know that that's not a, a pleasurable smell. But olfactory system, in the smell, it was a pleasing aroma. And we're familiar with that. When you walk into a restaurant and if you smell something that isn't very good or if it was burning, most of the time you'd think, I'm not going to go there if they can't, you know, it doesn't smell correctly. And the scent, even they talk about it in science as the scents are connected with a memory. Oftentimes the smell, the olfactory system, when you smell something, you can connect it to a memory or a time of your childhood. And I'll give you a picture of it. Think about it. Think about the smells at Thanksgiving. You know, those are usually a happy time. Think about the smells at Christmas time. You know, if I were to say peppermint or pine, you know, you think about Christmas time. Even though we live in the desert, you, you may have had a, um, a pine scented tree or a real tree, but it just reminds you of Christmas. And those are usually happy, joyful times. And here, as we see God responding, it recognizes and acknowledges the offering in verse 21. He recognizes that. So we see, first of all, that God isn't just this God who's distant, but he also responds and interacts with mankind. But also he demonstrates, and thank you for singing the song this morning, because grace. He demonstrates an act of grace. In verse 21, he says, I will not curse um, the ground again because of mankind, nor destroy all of the living. And what he's saying there, to put it in other words, is that he is not going to give immediate justice, although God has a justifiable motive. Because this is teaching people what they're not getting. And if you look at verse one, it's, uh, 21, it says, I will never again curse the ground because a man, even though man's inclination is evil from his youth, and never again strike down every living thing as I have done. To understand grace is... Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. If you were to stand before a judge and your penalty for your crime that you deserve is, say, 10 years, and he gives you nothing, that is an act of grace. He's really giving you what you don't deserve, which is, for us, guilty. We deserve punishment. But he also um, gives us mercy, and he demonstrates mercy in verse 21, where it says, establishes regularity and predictability in the natural realm. In verse 22, it says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. So you have to remember, at that time, there were no seasons. Can you imagine a time without seasons? We can understand a little bit in Arizona that there's seasons. There's hot and cold. Okay? But if you have lived anywhere else where they actually have seasons, snow, fall, spring, summer, and construction. Oh, that's all year round. But you understand that there is a regularity. And if in the agrarian society, everything is dependent upon the seasons. Have you ever done farming? And it is determined by that. But here, what occurs is understanding is that he demonstrates mercy and establishes regularity and predictability in the natural realm. The cycle of seasons established, even though God's heart may be continually evil, as it talks about. So he's giving us mercy is giving us less than we deserve. And that's a good thing because sometimes um, we want justice. And understanding if we, were, if we want justice for everyone else, we have to have justice for ourselves. But God is merciful in giving us less than we deserve. Because we deserve immediate death and punishment for any sin. So that is just a, as we look at that, the God's response. But now as we go turn to chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, we see the established 
of the Noahic covenant. And it's interesting because if you follow along, the word covenant, it's kind of a theme. It's mentioned. And as you go through and hermeneutics, as we interpret and understand, read something, covenant, covenant, covenant. It's kind of, kind of one of those things where if uh, someone is talking to you, whether it be um, those who you can tune out. Um, I'll be honest, as many husbands, many kids can tune out their moms, you know, and they only hear certain things. It's a, it's a, a gift that they're given at, at young, as a young person. You know, filter out, oh, did you say something? Or, you know, and, um, but here there is a specific expressing emphasis of the word covenant. And um, you, you see it expressed in other ways in, in comics and in, in films about how someone's trying to communicate to another person. They don't hear anything. But if you mention something like uh, money or allowance, oh, then all of a sudden they hear something or this, something they want to hear. They tune everything else out. But here, God expresses the word covenant and the agreement and what that is. And so we see, first of all, in verse 2 of chapter 9, we see here what the fear of man is it put into the heart of animals. So animals beforehand, the relationship between mankind and animals was different. Nowadays, we can clearly see that the, the fear of man is put in the heart of animals. Now, there's domesticated animals. We teach we can domesticate and develop relationships with animals for a long period of time, but some must understand they're still a, a wild animals. We've seen responses of how animals have acted in an aggravated way. Um, and you see sometimes those videos of a person driving through a safari in Africa. And that's a, a, a wild animal. That is a lion and you know, or an elephant. Understand, oh, look, I've only seen them in zoos. They're all nice and gentle. And you know, then you see them smash in the car or actually do something that wild animals do. But um, here, the fear of man is put into the heart of animals. Secondly, we see that mankind is permitted to eat the flesh of animals. And I know that this is where many people are happy because, oh, right, we can actually eat the animal's beef. If you're a vegetarian here, that's how life was beforehand, but now permission is given to eat the animals. And prior, we know that they were vegetarians. But in verse 3, every living creature will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. Okay, so you can eat that. And, and um, bugs and animals, some of those things, I choose not to eat, but it has been given an understanding that the only requirement is not the lifeblood be in them. The third thing we see in the Noahic Covenant is the fact that the principle of capital punishment. Capital punishment um, is a biblical concept, and it says here that um, however... Uh, excuse me, skipping it, I will require the life of every animal and every man for your life and your blood. Verse 5, I will require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man, for God made man in his own image. Now, sometimes this is taken out of context, but it's really talking about premeditated murder. You know, there, um, even later we see about the accidental death and what occurs, but understanding that that, that is a moral precept that is given in the word of God. However, society has tried to divide um, our understanding of what truth is and say, well, you know what, it's not really wrong in this situation. And they've tried to t make it morally relevant. And we'll actually discuss more of that in, in other services about relativism. But here, we see here this, and the last um, point of the Noahic Covenant is the binding promise of never destroying the earth by flood again. And those of you who've been through floods, here we, sometimes in Arizona, you know what floods we've seen it occur, even on the I-10 and throughout. But 
A flood would be a very devastating challenge for any low-lying people who live. We live in a valley, and so flooding, though it doesn't always occur, it can occur and spread out, and we see the damage that occurs. But imagine flooding, everyone would be moving to higher ground, and eventually, as we see in the story of the flood, there is no more higher ground. And those who may question the flood, I, would, I was doing some reading, and even in the Chinese language, there's a book that talks about how some of the characters, and here the Chinese community have lived separate, um, and it talks about, about 4,500 um, years and separate, and it talks about how within their written language, you see some of the characteristics of the flood story in the language, in the pictograms, but it's very interesting. But what happens is God will never destroy the flood by, destroy the earth by flood again. And then he places the promises of the rainbow. So as we look at this passage, one of the things I wanted to mention is those of you who, who have grown up and maybe you've had a Schofield Bible or heard about Schofield, um, he characterizes this passage as a dispensation of human government. And while some may argue whether that's the best description, or whether this is considered dispensation of all. For me, it's not the importance of how many dispensations there are, but the fact that there are dispensations. And so I thought I would introduce that a little bit today because the word dispensations, and um, here um, I believe in the correctly interpreted as a word of God, this church and those who have come from my perspective would be considered a dispensationalist, and it affects how we interpret the word of God. But Charles Ryrie, who is known for his writings in dispensationalism, and um, here the fact is that he defines it as a distinguishable economy, and using that word, or stewardship administration in the outworking of purpose. And you might say, what does that mean? Of God's purpose. The emphasis lies in the arrangement involved. And I don't want to get too technical, but I want you to understand what this is. Okay, and because it also relates to, as we think about a covenant, what is a covenant? What is this agreement entered into? So in dispensationalism, or in a dispensation that, if we were to call this the Noahic dispensation, there are two parties. First of all, the one whose authority is to delegate duties, and the one who has a responsibility to carry out those charges. Secondly, there are specific responsibilities within this. And then thirdly, Within this arrangement, there's accountability as well as responsibility. So one party has a, has a responsibility, if you think about it, gives a stewardship to someone. They have an accountability because someone could give you a responsibility and then never check it. If you're, if you're a young person and your parents say, clean your room, but they never check, you think, ha, huh, I can just shove everything underneath or no big deal. Or they give you a responsibility, I want you to mow the lawn. Or your boss gives you a responsibility and says, I want you to have this done by next week. And they never check. It's like, well, why should I do that? It's kind of like the Dilbert. If you're a fan of the Dilbert and the cubicle, maybe you have no idea what that is, but Dilbert is a, is a comic strip, in, and it takes place in the business world. And he's an engineer, and oftentimes deadlines. Deadlines are never met because there's always some employee or some pointy um, boss who kind of disrupts the uh, flow of how things get done. And so it can be very frustrating. But here there is an accountability. So someone's going to check your work and a responsibility. And fourthly, there is a, ch a change within the arrangement may be made at any time. So what can occur is that 
sometimes um, there will be other requirements placed within this agreement. And that's what the dispensations. And the word economy is used as we think about an economic system. But, uh, but as we look at this, the dispensation, sometimes have tried, people have tried to equate it with an age or a period of time. While they're connected ideas, they're not, they're not completely interchangeable. So it is the arrangement and not always the time involved that is specific. And, and so that's where we look at this dispensation. So let's, as we go through here, just understand that, keep that in mind. But I want to give you one more thing. And this other list is there's three important distinctions of dispensationalism. Because um, as we look at it, oftentimes theologians, scholars, and others, as I would look at, we are in the period or dispensation of grace. And that means that God doesn't deal with us in the same way that he did in the Old Testament. He does not require you to go and sacrifice a lamb outside. Thankfully, we live in a different era. We live under the um, dispensation of grace, whereas the requirements are a little different because of what Jesus Christ did for us. He provided a way in which we could um, obtain salvation. And so there's different expectations. For us, it's important for us to understand what are the expectations. If you are given a role or a job, you'd want to know what's expected of you. There can be nothing more frustrating than be given a, a mandate or a responsibility and you have no idea how to accomplish it. You have no idea what you're supposed to do. Maybe uh, someone were to give, give you a set of instructions. If you were an athlete um, and uh, the NBA Finals are on, I was thinking about that and how, oh, you know what? They have to, there are regulations that they have to play some of these other games. Right now, if you're keeping track of the scores, it's, um, there's these two teams and everyone is waiting for Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland um, Cavaliers to meet. And it's just these other two teams, they've been winning by quite a bit. And it's like, oh, the, most people aren't watching them because it is a blowout. And in any sporting event, it's not much fun to watch unless you're the winning team. But there are requirements that must go through. They have to have the best of seven. So they still, each team has to play at least two more games. So that is the requirements, and they, they understand that. With living in the age of grace, it's a, we see that there are requirements that, that we live under. But these distinctions in dispensationalism, first of all, the fact, one important distinction is that Israel and the church are distinct. There are those who try to say, well, the church in the New Testament has replaced Israel. But I believe that there's a distinction because it affects your hermeneutics, your interpretation of the Bible. Because if that is true, then we have to have the right of circumcision. Um, for then we have to have the right of, uh, um, we look at other requirements that Israel has that are not placed upon uh, the, the church. And one involves earthly people and an earthly purpose, while the other involves a heavenly people and a heavenly purpose. And those are some of the distinctions. Second of all, we look at a consistent or nor normal literal interpretation. And our hermeneutic. How we interpret the Word of God. See, the challenge is when people face the Word of God, they read Noah, they read the flood, and they say it's just a story. They read it without the understanding of truth. And the challenge nowadays, living in our world and society, is that there is no absolute truth, there is no truth of, of the Word of God, the Bible. But yet, they make this division between science 
And then anything, these moral, what are morals, they consider morals, or what they consider um, other truths, such as theology, and, and they only look at their epistem, epistemology, if you will, or their, where do you find truth? What do you, how do you find truth? What is true? They would say, well, this may be true for you, but it's not true for me. The challenge is they've, they've changed the whole definition of what truth is. So here, if we understand this as biblical truth, and that is a whole generation. So as we interact with people understanding what is truth, most people, when you take science, um, empirical evidence, we look at how do we measure what is truth. And objective, even that word as I was studying out, objective truth doesn't mean that it's agreed upon by this group of people. It just means that we can have an answer. doesn't mean that the majority is right. But in science, we look at something measurable, use a scientific method, is this what is truth? We can arrive at it, we can repeat it. So we look at something that can be affected by our senses. But then we come to the Bible and we look at it and we don't, there are those who measure it and say, well, this isn't really um, truth because it's a bunch of stories that we're going through. But the problem is they begin with a bias. They begin with the fact that there is no God. So they don't see it as truth because, oh, they, we can't look at it that way. So that's an important element because as we look at even a consistent and normal in literal interpretation, when we read the Bible, it doesn't mean that everything, when I say literal, it doesn't mean that everything is literal. Because I can be reading through um, Song of Solomon. I can be reading through other passages that are poetry. And um, where it talks about neck is an ivory tower, okay? And it's not saying, oh, wow, an ivory tower. If you were to say that to a loved one or a woman, say, oh, you know, you have you know, a neck like an ivory tower or, you know, your hair is like goat's hair, you know, that's not what it's saying. And especially, but they would say, oh, culturally relevance in there. But we interpret it in the genre that it is. But it's a literal, normal, interpretive um, system. But what that provides is that provides an an understanding of how we arrive at truth. It's consistent. The key word is consistent. Because what often happens when people read the word of God, well, what about this? What about this? And they'll jump to different areas, and they also will try to interpret it different ways. Well, here it's allegory, and that's what often happens. So the distinction of uh, the dispensationalism, consistent, normal interpretation. Last thing is the underlying purpose of God in the world. And here's a challenge because there are those, what is the underlying purpose of God for in this world? What is, his, is the purpose of his great plan? You know, why are we here? We all want to find out what is our purpose in life? What is, why, why did God do what he did if we believe in God? Some say, well, it's only salvation. The whole reason that God did everything is because salvation. Well, as essential as salvation is to God's plan, that is man-centered. And what that means is, if salvation is the end result, then it's all about mankind getting to heaven. But as we look at it in our interpretation of the word of God, and we see the picture of salvation even in the story of, of Noah. He was preserved. But what was the reason for his preservation? And as we see here, the end result is for the glory of God. God's glory. It's all about him. God-centered. And that is, these are important tenets of dispensationalism. And as we look down, going back to, I know I spent a lot of time on that, but I want you to understand that because in 
Throughout the story of the Bible, there's different times where there were certain requirements that God gave. We know the Mosaic Covenant of what happens is Ten Commandments and certain requirements there. Mosaic Law. And we have the Davidic Covenant under the King. And then it's important for us to understand New Covenant. But as, as we look here in chapter 9, as God's covenant with Noah, we're affected by this as well because he says God will never destroy the earth by flood again. That's a good thing. Even though while you'll have to buy flood insurance, because some of you may live in that flood plain, he will never destroy the earth by flood again. But what does that mean for us as we look at it? As we consider the picture of salvation seen in the biblical record of Noah and his family, we must recognize the validity of the occurrence, the fact that this did occur as a historical event. And there is evidence if you search it out. The challenge is that the secular environment will all say, well, this is just a story. But as a covenant, as, a, as an agreement that God enters into with his people, while there are many whose worldview prevents them from even considering a fair evaluation of this historical record, they have a distorted understanding of truth. And that's where I want to really emphasize because their epistemological system bases truth upon what their senses can discern, as I mentioned. They have dissected dissected truth and empirical evidence of science as they interpret it and the morals and values into what they perceive or feel truth is. So there's a dichotomy of, of the two. Here you have science, oh yeah, and the record, the historical record. But they take and divide it as this is just a bunch of stories, of biblical stories. But as we read it and we understand it, and I would challenge each one of you because um, there are those who said just believe it. But there is record of it. And even as we think about Mount Ararat, of, of this, of this um, boat that has been discovered. And one of the reasons I believe that hasn't been truly discovered by all is because oftentimes what happens is when mankind finds something, um, a historical record that's in the Bible, what do they often do? They rush to worship it. Um, if way back when... And young people, you won't be able to relate to this, but back when eBay was just coming about and, you know, they'd sell everything on eBay. But guess what? There was a, there, the craziest thing I saw being sold on eBay was a picture of a piece of toast that they said, look, it's got the face of Jesus in it. And so people would buy it because, oh, it's a spiritual thing. And they, you know, long to worship that and worship where Jesus was born, worship this or that. If it's a spiritual nature, people go after it and try to find it, but they forget um, as it talks about in Isaiah, they forget who the creator is and they worship the object instead. So as we look at this and understand this covenant that it goes into the agreement, you know, I, in verse 8, I'm confirming my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, birds and livestock, the sign of the covenant between you and me and place my bow in the clouds. So understanding the importance even of a rainbow, there is... It has been tried to be taken away, but understand the significance of the rainbow and how important that is. God said to, to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have confirmed between me and every creature on earth. So a person who has a biblical worldview has a systemic understanding of truth. And that's why I want to express to you, as you read the story of Noah, it's not just a made-up truth. You can go through it and understand and have a trust of a, as a biblical and as a record of truth. And there'll be so. how can you believe the Bible? Well, I would even encourage you to, to understand a reckoning of what truth is. 
to search it out apart from it, even the life of Christ. You know, you can't just dismiss everything. And that's what often happens is, how can you fit the animals in the ark? And there are those who approach the Bible and just try to piece everything and try to take it apart. Are there difficult passages in the Bible? Yes, absolutely. But we can see within the system of discovering and understanding truth, it provides a proper record and looking at that. And we can have confidence in that because it helps also our moral system and basis of that. And so when a person who has a biblical worldview has a systemic understanding of truth, truth can only come from other truth. Because that's where these secular humanists and those who are more relativists say, where can you get truth? They say, well, I can only, what's truth for you is not truth for me. They've distorted what the definition of truth is. Is truth always or is it sometimes? And I'll be honest, young people in church have been deceived by this as well of what truth is. Because they'll say, well, what's truth for you might not be truth for me. Is this always wrong? But that's why the whole system of what truth is, it's important to understand your basis of how you discover truth. And within the scientific and moral value system, we can ascertain truth because of a consistent evaluation of the origin of truth. That's why the Bible and even the relationship with God is so important. If God is truth, then we can understand truth. Because if you take an evolutionary standpoint, where does truth come from? Okay, because isn't your system based upon a random occurrence and understanding? Check everything. And sometimes it is, and so the worldview. But... The important part is understanding that God has revealed truth through us through Jesus Christ and we are grateful for that act of love through salvation. Now our responsibility lies in learning more about that role and telling others about Christ but also identifying opportunities to glorify God throughout our lives. When we realize our role as recipient or steward of God's administration, we cannot help but be grateful and seek to honor and serve God the best we can with the gifts that he has given us, which include our time, our talents, and our resources. And that's hopefully what I want to express to you this morning, to realize our role within this relationship that God has given us today. And we see a great picture of that, even beginning um, of a covenant, the agreement, um, and looking at that as being uh, dispensations. And so... Now the dispensation of grace. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time we've had. And Lord, I thank you for this, your word. Lord, I thank you for the promise of Noah. And I think about the challenge of going through those circumstances to understand what it means to, to be able to see the destruction, a worldwide flood. I cannot imagine the pain it would have cost to see others just simply being destroyed through flood and then to think about the preservation of the animals of Noah and his family but then also given the responsibility of to replenish the earth and to continue on but Lord the responsibility and there are ones here who who have a responsibility to continue on and our the role that you have given to each one of us is to continue on your work and Father, it begins by helping us to understand what truth is, to, to understand who you are. First and foremost, I pray that each one here has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, because you are truth. If you were to die today and stand before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? 
I pray that you might be able to answer that in a way which would demonstrate a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you're here this morning and, and you were to die and you say, you know, I'm not sure what I would say or I'm not sure if I would go to heaven, I pray that today might be the day. And if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I just need some more info or I'm not sure, I just pray that you slip your hand up, put it back down. Don't want to embarrass you, just simply want to pray for you. Because this morning you can know for sure your eternal destiny, that you are in a right relationship with God the Father. For those of you who are here this morning and have a personal relationship with Christ, I would encourage you just to evaluate and just ask, how am I doing fulfilling that role, the responsibility that God has given me? Because each of us, no matter what age we're at, can still fulfill that role and to glorify God with their lives. So often we're concerned about those around us. But you know what? Tomorrow they could be gone. But someday we will stand before God. And while we will give a reckoning, he, he will ask us and say, what have we done? As a steward for Christ, how have you honored me? How have you glorified me? What have you done? And my prayer is that we can respond in a way which would which we would be able to give an accounting that would demonstrate that we have lived in a way and glorified you. And while I don't want to discourage and to, to burden you with that, I also want you to understand that there is great joy, there is great blessing, even as we've sung about this morning, blessing in serving God. God gives us so many wonderful things. He gives us the privilege to spend time with family, to experience new things. There's great joy in that. Even the personal peace and satisfaction can only come from Christ when we have a right relationship with him. And that's my prayer for you this morning, that we would live in that and to know that, the abundance of joy and peace. You can have that today. And I just pray that uh, you would continue. So as we take time this morning, the piano plays, I just pray that you would reflect upon that and think about how is my relationship with God?